Are you a late bloomer? I'm kind of a weird combination of precocious and late blooming. Um, there were things that I had done very early, um, usually in defiance of other people's expectations of me or wanting to kind of just jump a couple of decades and be very mature. Um, I always felt when I was a child that there are certain types of maturity, especially linguistic, um, that would come in handy. Um, you know, if you grew up in an environment that I grew up in. Uh, and there were things that I just did much later, uh, which um, is a combination. I mean, the, the, the reasons behind, uh, behind this are, you know, either just I was broke when I was young, um, or I didn't have the self-confidence, or I just, in many, many cases, lacked the trust in other people, um, especially like in private life, to just get too, too active. So there are things that I, I did much later than my peers. Um, although I don't know who my peers are, maybe, you know, um, yeah, I don't know. I actually wrote an article about this called As We May Adult in 2019, which is not my best, but I kind of argue that with the removal of certain social milestones, when somebody does what has become this completely arbitrary thing. Um, it's really hard to compare two people. Um, I don't know, you go on a date and you're trying to figure out, is you being 30 the same as the other person being 30? And that no longer comes with any kind of comparable guarantee within classes or, 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 or life um, or, or environment. Um, and so I don't know, but I do think that, um, that I, the, 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 the more important things in my life always take a long time and other things I figure out very quickly. You are a startup founder. Yes. When did that become a predictable thing that you would do? How early in your life did you have any idea this would be something you would do? I decided to be a startup founder in October 2016. And that had two reasons, an external and an internal, like in a hero's journey. The, uh, or maybe like it was actually like three different layers kind of coincided. The, the kind of semi-external or semi-public reason was an event in my family that happened at the time. It was not a spectacular event. I just received and sent an email um, that kind of clicked something for me um, and liberated me in many ways. And I felt in that moment somehow that my shadow died. And, and I actually like entertained this idea that if there was another Anna in another universe, who grew up maybe into a more, you know, uh, the more in the in a more expected way, then this would be the moment when she would die, and this would be the moment when she committed suicide or OD'd or some other terrible thing uh, would have, have have befallen her. But I'm not her, and she's gone, and I don't have to live my life anymore, you know, as a neg negation of this person. I can do anything now, um, and so that and the so that there was a very it's a huge moment of liberation. Um, whilst, you know, this was October 2016, uh, Curtis's hypernormalization had just come out and Leonard Cohen had just died and, you know, weird things were happening in, uh, in English and American politics. Um, and I remember having had read, um, a New Yorker article, uh, about Sam Altman. And I was working at a startup at the time because I was a poor immigrant and they were the only people who would, um, not be super racist and hire me. Um, for a very, very little amount of money. 
But I didn't know that startups were a philosophy. I just thought that was a place where they pay you very little. Um, and to, like where incompetent leaders pay you little <laughs> startups. Um, <laughs> and then I read this interview with Sam Altman in the New Yorker, which was still free to read online and so I could afford it. Um, and I remember just having this kind of epiphany professionally, like, oh my God, okay, so there are these problems in the outside world. And here I am suddenly liberated from family script. Um, and here is this guy talking about how you can actually go and take the wheel. And until that point, I was 31, almost 30, almost 32. And almost, no, almost 33, sorry, yeah, um, because it's 2016, October. And so late blooming, right? Like a very uh, uh, um, Christian uh, late blooming age. And, and that was the first time when I was like, okay, so maybe I will not have a meta life. I will not just be a university teacher and a writer and somebody who, you know, like Bruce, like I'm in bed and like write about my 20s when I was partying, which is what I had planned until then, that point. And I started thinking of the unthinkable, which is that I could build and lead something on my own. And I'm super grateful to Sam Altman for randomly putting this, involuntarily putting this article in front of me in the right moment. Actually, I met him. He was the, one of the first people I went to see when I first went to America in 2019. Um, and I will tell you how that happened. And I brought him the book, uh, Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon as a thank you for basically changing my life completely involuntarily. He, he was feeling very, very uncomfortable by this, um, but in a very sweet way. Um, and so that happened. And then I started thinking, okay, so I know this now I, that I'm free and that there, there's this issue that I want to help with. And that was the first moment in my life when I stopped thinking about, like I basically changed the vantage point that I stopped thinking about things I lack and expect other people to do. And I can like use those things, consume those things, analyze things. And I literally almost like went through my mental CV, like what could I do? And I had no idea about Ikigai, but I basically created this Venn diagram in my head, head like, okay, so, what is a big need in the world? What is a big upcoming technology? What is an unanswered problem in the world? And then what is something that I'm really, really excited about? And I had this kind of exercise, mental exercise that it's February and I have to wake up at five in the dark. And I have had, I've been, you know, under the weather for weeks now and I have to go into a room and not just like be excited uh, to work on this, but I could make an entire room of people excited to work on the same thing. So I like, I re really raised the bar. Um, and then I basically created this weird combination of completely incompatible things that my background is in linguistics and philosophy. And I kind of know a little bit about, you know, how language is thought to work or that I had worked as a playwright and a screenwriter for 12 years. And I had studied Aristotle and Mackie and we know we have an algorithm for how to write dialogue for um for fictional characters like any hollywood screenwriter can like sit down and create this visual like diagram and i was like that makes no sense like if we have a public discourse problem and a cultural encounter problem why don't we teach actual human beings this or, or create tools where these like fictional characters are fine they don't need you you know um <laughs> but human beings are not fine um and and basically what was in the center of the of the Venn diagram 
Um, I just like piled things there. I had studied a little bit of like linguistic AI at the time. I had worked um, with NGOs. I'm, I was the co-founder of um, a Hungarian, one of the first Hungarian popular feminist platforms called Uvek Plafon uh, with a childhood friend, um, the glass ceiling. And the, one of the main concepts was to bring in politically bring together a politically and ideologically extremely diverse group without the activist fervor or the academic incomprehensibility like real people but coming from all over the aisle um, to talk about real, real problems that women have um, and it was super successful we won a glamour woman of the year award for it so it was a very successful project and so I, I had zero self-confidence at the time and, and my whole immigration story was extremely traumatizing to me um but at that point i felt that okay nobody cares about my personal problems like this is not the moment there's a there's a battle cry and you know i'm a political immigrant i left a place for very specific reasons i gave up all of my life for this like everything that i had including my good name and my apartment and my car and my boyfriend to be able to leave hungary and now i'm seeing the same things happening elsewhere and I can't let it happen because then there's nowhere to go. So I was very, you know, I had this kind of self-interest, <laughs> selfishness here that, you know, we, we need to build a world where in which we can exist. Um, and I remember like I spent so many days just like meditating and walking up and down in my apartment at the time because, you know, I knew I wanted to do this, but I didn't have any tools yet. I had zero, a zero network. Like I knew nobody. Like everything that I have today, I built from that moment on from complete zero with zero dollar. Um, but I remember this moment where the kind of creative side of my mind that was always attuned to religion and poetry and music and that I always kind of compartmentalized and kept aside from all practical, you know, goal oriented thinking. And my other side that was kind of like very managerial and that enabled me to manage rock bands in my 20s and like really put things together. I remember that kind of merging. I almost like heard mm. the two sides of my brain merging. And I think that combination enabled me to start an actually, actually pretty long three-year process of iterating from version to version until interintellect was found. And I figured out approximately in what way I want to go about solving this cultural access discourse piece um, problem, which is just so great that the first time you tell it to an investor, the first 1,000 times you get just laughed in your face. So you were in your 30s, you were a playwright. Mm -hmm. you, you said you were you had immigrated. Where where were you? You were in London? Um, where did I immigrate? So I, I was born in Budapest um, and I lived there almost all, always until the age of 30. Uh, so I'm, I'm a very late immigrant. Uh, one of the reasons is that I had a what I thought was a very good life in Budapest. So I had a kind of a gilded cage. I have a very famous name. Um, I knew everybody. I had a very dense network, um, incredible friends. Um, I'm also the, 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 I think I'm the one generation that for a couple of years had a good time in Hungary. I went to, I went to university in 2002 and I remember the period 2005 to 2008. So there was this three, four year period 
when I was a student, when Budapest was amazing. Like the, there was this, the, we had just joined the EU. There was still some money left. And there was this enormous cultural scientific boom. And I'm so grateful that I, it's sad because we know what we lost, but also I'm so happy to had had the chance to kind of spend that time there. Um, and so it was very hard to leave. And really, I as a late bloomer, I was not one of the first people to leave. I had to experience basically having been left behind by my entire generation and really seeing that all my talented and intelligent friends are somewhere else having a much better time. Um, but it was for me, it was an artist process because so much of my knowledge, it's kind of weird to say this now because my knowledge now is so international and I'm running this super global thing. But if you had met me in, I don't know, 2010, let's say, then you would have seen somebody who is 100% in her social life and professional life parochial. Intellectually not. So intellectually, I, would, I, mean, I speak multiple languages. You know, I would always read and I watched every movie. I had the time, right? I wasn't sort of founder, so I watched every movie. Um, I, you know, I was a know-it-all living with my dictionaries, but I was super... Like I could never imagine like marrying a foreigner or going somewhere else unless it was like I was I think I was kind of waiting for this deus, deus ex machina to come and to come and save me. Um, and then slowly that eased up and and yeah, maybe. OK, so actually there is another element to this. So when I was young, my family was very rich. And just the moment when I had come of age and I would have been able to go to university in the US or go abroad, get some support, my family basically both lost most of their money and were in this sense not supportive. And so basically in like 2002 and three, I kind of gave up on this and said, okay, then I will live here and make the most out of it. And I basically made kind of a quasi international life, but in Budapest. It's, I think it's an archetype. And nowadays when I see somebody like that, I know exactly. Like this is a specific kind of person who takes the second best and, and but pretends in her head or his head that this is the real thing. And that was me until I was 30. And really, really serious political family things had to happen to me whilst also observing everybody else leaving to come out of this daydream and be like, okay, so I'm almost 30, do I want to settle down here? Do I want to have family here? And then the answer to that was just like a giant neon sign of no, five exclamation marks. And then, okay, like then there's no time. And I started applying in 2011, I started applying for a variety of different scholarships and jobs. So I was kind of hesitating between New York, London and Paris. Um, I decided against Paris. I sadly didn't get the opportunity that would have enabled me to go to New York City um, in 2012. That would have been really good. Um, and so I decided on London, which was like my third favorite of the three. Um, and I just got, I went there in 2013, September 2013, and I basically got stuck there. You got and stuck? It took me six and a half years to get out. Yeah. How did you get stuck? I got stuck in the poverty loop. Mm. So you were a student in London? I was a student for one year. Um, I studied, a, I did my third master's degree in theater at Goldsmiths. Mm -hmm. uh, on a, 
funnily, on one of the, I think it was the last year to get a European Union scholarship <laughs> um, because I graduated in 2014. Um, maybe, maybe like, maybe they were one other year. Um, and, but nobody would hire me. I didn't know anybody. I suddenly, I very quickly in London realized that unlike in the US, nobody cares about newcomers and self-made people in the UK. Mm. And that was so, like, this is the one thing that I can just like break down in tears any moment because I was so deeply disappointed, um, basically realizing that I'm in a Northern European kingdom as opposed to this semi-American thing that was sold to me, um, that it was heartbreaking. And again, you know, this thing switched on that I will make it work somehow. So you... and, I, and I didn't, so I, I left. You did the one year of the master's and then you went to work for the startup? So I in, I, I graduated in 2014. And at the time I got a script reading job at NBC Universal. I was reading mm -hmm. French screenplays for very little amount, very little money. Right. Um, and I, what did I do then? I was trying to do freelance work as a researcher for film companies. I was still, I think at the time, thinking that I would uh, somehow go into or stay in show business. I wrote multiple plays. So I had some plays on and readings at the Soho Theatre, um, at Goldsmiths. Um, I, we had one at Camden Fringe Festival. So there were mm -hmm. multiple, uh, multiple things that I worked on. And... I worked for a freelance writing agency called Quill. Um, mm -hmm. That was actually a really good experience. And I learned a lot there on how to work with writers as an editor, which actually is really useful to me now in how, how I work with hosts. Like how okay. you commission, how you pay, how you keep account, like the accountability question. Um, so I went, so it was in 20... It was in January 2015, so I was a fresh immigrant, just graduated, and I was working on European movies and flying around Europe to Berlin and Bratislava at all these, uh, and Berlin Film Festival at all these like screenwriting workshops and awards, and you know, I was doing the, the kind of Central European newbie or, or semi-newbie film thing um trying to make my way, way to feature films i had written a couple of feature films um that were never that never really got any funding or or never went very far i had a couple of uh short scripts in development at a variety of different uh with, the, with different people in in london as well um and then i had a big family cataclysm in january 2015 um that basically like finalized my having left so until then I would always go back in the first year I was back and forth between Budapest and London um and and then after that it was a snap thing and I had found myself in London I was still doing the glass ceiling um the Hungarian uh, non-profit mm -hmm. that I was doing but I basically I mean the first three months I had a massive nervous breakdown I got I was almost homeless. I got 1,500 um, pounds in loan from a friend of mine. I never had any loans. 
because I literally like I didn't I didn't like I was just like I'm out of it and um it, it was really um it was a very trying experience and probably the hardest thing that has ever happened to me um uh, because I it was at that point that I had lost everything um there was a wonderful um British uh foundation who provide uh support to women like me um and I had to I was on a wait list for like seven months because I was not in immediate danger um but after I got in they were basically the my sanity um yeah and I started like looking for jobs at first I went I had to go into customer service and I was doing catering and I was flyering at Old Street um at 6 a.m cosmetic samples like that's where I started um I was living in these horrible houses with extremely loud dirty drug addicted young Londoners um and if you know me I just want to just shut up the whole day and read books and then go and do things on the internet so that's kind of my lifestyle so it was not compatible with anything there (laughs) um and I was just trying to be cultural and I would go to Oxford to like listen to Tom Stoppard and I would go to the welcome collection so I was trying to kind of make the most out of being in London. Um, And then I got laid off from customer service for my customer service job with which I was making 1200 pounds a month. Um, And I got the, eventually I got the startup job, uh, which was almost the same exact amount of money, but for full-time work. So um, yeah. That was uh, that. That were that was the beginning, and at the because I was the head of content for a very specialized company. Um, it was really good to like I, what I had learned at Quill and how they were working with me as a freelance writer. Now I was hiring like a hundred freelance writers per per quarter um, at at this startup, and that was amazing like managing that paying bad, like understanding, we were working on Upwork and just having a sense of like the quality, how to interview people, how to ask for samples, what to demand and what to give. I mean, when I started InterInteract, it was like this for me. I knew exactly how it works with the hosts. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was very helpful. And of course, a lot of other things like growing up on like film sets and TV sets and understanding how production works and you know, that kind of vibe and camaraderie um, was also very useful. But I, I distinctly remember that the biggest thing that I took away from um, from this startup was this enormous self-confidence that I could just put together a magazine. If, if, if I was given the time and resources and there was enough pressure, I would totally like run a magazine or run, you know, a I could program for a TV for a week and it would not really, like it would be hard, but it would not break me. Um, so that was really useful. So now we're we're getting closer to t- October, 2016. <laughs> so you were learning skills, but also things about like how capable you were mm. that wasn't a sort of direct path to an interintellect, but which mm-hmm. was giving you that breadth and changing your perspective without which you wouldn't have made the jump to to start the company, do you think? I mean, I think one of the reasons why I never started a company before was because up, up to the moment when I had this breakdown in my life, I was in, in living in a complete dream world. 
Like I was so, it was so bad for me that I was just not present. And now that I think back to a lot of experiences in my life, I was kind of half-assing it. Like I was there in that situation, in that relationship, in that job, but not really. Like I would always have this fantasy world in which I would disappear. And the moment when that was no longer necessary because there was nothing, I didn't need the shield from anything. I, I remember feeling extremely vulnerable and exposed because suddenly I was free. So I didn't have this exoskeleton. But I also, it enabled me to look at reality and be like, okay, so what is going on in the world and how can I help? And I think because it happens so, this, this is why I like late bloomers. Um, I know you do too. Um, because whilst you are kind of in this cocoon, you become so strong and so smart while nobody knows. Like everybody thought that I was the flakiest person when I was young. Because I would do a little bit of this, I would be I very like very dedicatedly, but only like three years of managing rock stars, and then I got really good at it, and I would take them around on tours, and we would record albums, and it was amazing, right? And then I would I would do I did cu- cultural journalism, and I made it to the best magazine in Hungary where you can write about it, and then it stopped being interesting to me. So people thought, oh, Anna is just a person, you know, who is flaky. She will just marry some rich guy. I don't know. Um, and I was just looking for something. And then at some point I found it. And then this is all I do, all I've been doing in the past six years, nonstop, basically. I don't know. I was working nights in the first one and a half years in London. Like I would go to work at 10.30 at night in Chancery Lane and I would finish at 6.30 in the morning and I would go home, sleep a couple of hours and then build a company. So I think I've like kind of proven my, <laughs> my you know, steadfastness um, or perseverance here. Um, but it also, you know, I always keep this in mind when I'm judgmental of other people that you have no idea what lies in somebody. Like, I remember like distinctly, I was many, many times told, uh, in my family that I would never make money because I'm just not that kind of person. You were told by your relatives that you weren't capable of making money. Yes. And I'm like, now I'm like, why? What was the data that suggested this? Did they give a reason? Did, was it this flakiness thing or did they have other, did they give other sort of stated reasons? I think they just, I think they didn't see me as flake. I think flake is not, the, but they saw me as a kind of Luftmensch, like somebody who doesn't have practical skills. Ah, oh, yeah. Even though you'd been managing rock stars and, and you know, doing, I mean, some of those things you were doing were quite, practical right yeah maybe they just didn't know about it yeah i don't know or is this when you were a child no this was actually um i was just remembering this recently this was um maybe 15 years ago so not so long ago in that period some late bloomers go through a period in their 20s when it's like are you doing anything We can't see the direction. And you kind of know that you're up to stuff, but to other people, it doesn't look. I didn't know, honestly. I always, when I was younger, my, there were two separate like, processes. One was the learning. And I remember at the beginning, I was just learning for social reasons. I wanted to be a good conversationalist. I wanted to be marriageable, like somebody that you can have a conversation about Wagner, uh, at a fancy dinner. Um, and then I remember distinctly this moment when 
um, when I was faced with this Rubicon, like if I cross this, I will be so smart that I won't be able to share all of it. Like it, it's going beyond the conversational level. Is that okay for me? And then I remember not thinking and just crossing when I was 21 or something. Um, but still I was, I think I had this almost sleeping beauty take on the whole thing that I don't have to be fully present in my life. I don't have to make anything of myself beyond some half-assed attempt to like keep myself on the level, like just doing enough to like be a little cool, just enough to get invited to places. And I was waiting and I was waiting for like external things like somebody to discover me, somebody to fall in love with me, somebody to invite me out of this. Um, and I was actually, it was quite a long process for me to, to wait. And, and the, the, the tragedy here for me, um, I mean, this was a very self-protective state of being um, because probably the reality at the time of like how I was living um, and where and, and with whom would have been just intolerable. But what was really scary was it's not, it's not like, oh, you are in this Deus Ex Machina state and then you suddenly oh, like wake up and you become this autonomous self-starter and now you know what to do. In fact, there is like this really dark, dark night of the soul, really dangerous couple of years period between when you had you have just given up the hope and there is no tomorrow and no time before this voice awakens in you and takes you out of it. And it's a really, I think, you know, and then one of the, one of the great lies of our culture is that these really difficult and high risk transition periods when the old life or the old you has ended but the new one hasn't begun yet should be a couple of months. And I have friends sometimes complaining to me that they are going through this rough patch. And people are like, well, you were already in a rough patch four months ago, like, cheer up. And, you know, the person is like, my parent has died. It's not like, oh, after four months, it's like this. You know, for some people, it's years. And we don't, we, I think we forgot that really big things in life take a lot of time. And so for me, the transition period, I think for me, the transition period really only ended last year. So from January 2015 to December 2021, something like that. Like really when, when I felt that the old triggers are not, no longer really there and I mm. can, you know, um, yeah. So it's, it's seven seven years basically. I think it's a, it's there's a there's a reason why they always say seven years, um, and it's the same. But, but right. probably when at the when you're at the beginning of your rough patch, you don't want to be told that this is going to be seven <laughs> years. And that's fine. I mean, people, you know, it doesn't mean that you're in stasis. Like I did a million things in those seven years. People have five kids in seven years and found religions and write novels. Like you, you can do whatever you want. But like at the same time, you need to own up to the fact and say that, oh, it's so, something is going to begin and it hasn't begun yet. And that's perfectly fine. So the way you're describing this, it almost sounds like a conversion, what you went through. Not literally, but a similar thing, right? Where you've had one type of life and you can't 
in a way you can't see beyond that life. And then something happens internal mm -hmm. as well as external, but really it's internal and you go through this transition and then you're just, mm -hmm. it's, it's just so different. You look back and you're like, what? Who was this person? What was this? Yeah. Who was, what was this first thing? And the, the how, how unkind that person was is what really hurt me. And I think was the main reason behind my, uh, I, I wasn't, it wasn't a diagnosed nervous breakdown, but looking back, I had a very severe breakdown and then one year of really severe PTSD um, in 2015. Like I didn't have any thoughts for nine months, basically. Um, and, and for a long time, I didn't have any sense of time. Like I didn't have tomorrow and then I had tomorrow, but I didn't have next week. And it's only very recently that I'm starting to like be able to think in decades, for instance, uh, again. But to me, like, yeah, so, so when, I, when I had this experience and the enormous pain was not just about things I lost, but I realized in January 2015 that up to that point, I was bad. That I was in a moral environment where being bad was the norm and that I behaved to other people in a way that was not good and that I want to stop right now. And I would never want to do that ever again. And I never want to be with people ever again who gaslight situations into bad being good. And I just, and I, I felt horrible about it. I literally cried for five months nonstop because I was so sad that I had been so, I mean, bad is such a childish world, word here, but um, I, Tell us what you mean by bad. Like the opposite of a good person. But you're not talking about like theft and violence. No, no but I felt that that I had been, I had absorbed this toxicity from my environment and then I would go and give it out on other people. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought this was that what's always very shocking um i think waking up from like really abusive things when you don't know any anything else is that you thought this was normal like being 30 years old and realize that everything you had thought until that point was wrong and that in the process you had become a really bad person was to me almost unbearable psychologically like i now, if I think back of this person um, going through this breakdown, literally sitting in these London kitchens and crying that she wants to be a good person, it's probably a little bit laughable. <laughs> but um, but it was very, very serious to me. And the reason why I don't think, I had a couple of like epiphany moments in my life, um, always at like very big strategic points. And, uh, but when I was 12, I had a proper epiphany experience with the skull opening and the conversion. So I converted to Christianity when I was 12. Mm -hmm. And I remember the scene very vividly. And so to me, it's a little bit like I was given the truth when I was 12 and I understood everything then. And then I forgot it. So I went into the Kaluga, I went into the darkness, I conformed, I forgot it. And then life gave me harsher and harsher things 
up to the point where one of them, I mean, when you're living in denial, you are like glass. You can be broken. When you're, you know, when you're free and you're like, it's flexible and part of the world, you can't really easily be broken because you don't have one surface that would collapse, right? Uh, you have a lot of like flexibility and ways with which you can move and you're part of nature, you're ever changing, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think I became this very elastic glass-like surface and I was broken by the biggest blow, but that was good. And I, and, and I think what you learn when you're broken, and this is why so many startup founders have really big trauma in their lives because founding a startup or building something like whatever I do in the rest of my life, it's always going to be just the second hardest thing I ever have to do. <laughs> I mean, like what, what can, you know? Um, and, and so I think back a lot and I write a lot about, you know, that experience I had when I was 12 and why I had it and how kind of life was dropping on me, these little reminders of that, but I kept always trying to compromise and, and I'm very happy that I basically was incapable of compromise somehow. <laughs> For somebody who like lives on mediation and like bringing the social and, you know, different social and political groups together, I personally am completely unable to compromise uh, on the big things. So, um, which I think is also a late blooming thing. Yeah. Because I think late bloomers are just like, I will do it when it's for real. Um, I had this really interesting conversation recently with somebody and, and I, I talked to him about what I call the devil's contract, that you have these big dreams when you're in your teens. And then in your 20s, we, in our 20s, we all get like a cheap, shitty version of it as a first offer. And it's like, you're being tested whether you will take it. You know, oh, you wanted to be a rock star, but no, 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 it's just like, you will just like sing in front of the mirror and work in a bank um, and be miserable for the rest of your life. And a lot of people sign it. Um, and I think I'm kind of this weird person because I did sign it. Like I was willing to build a shitty, fake, in denial version of what I wanted, living in a horrible personal situation and an increasingly untenable political one. And I was just like, it would be fine. I would just build this little bubble for myself and like be there. Um, and then I had to like tear up the contract or pretend it didn't exist and um, and leave. And for a very long time, I did feel, well, not that the devil would come after me because I don't believe in the devil, but um, I, I had a very strong survival guilt after leaving. Like, who am I to think that I'm better? You know, should, should I go down with that ship? Um, yeah, for a couple of years, it was very hard. Tell us what kind of childhood you had before you converted to Christianity. I had, at the beginning, I had a very good childhood because I I was mostly raised by my paternal grandparents until age of six. Mm -hmm. So I was in Budapest and I loved my grandfather and we were hanging out and I, I, was, I was sent to a very snobby private uh, kindergarten, um, only reflecting my parents' social anxiety and not my talents <laughs> or ambitions at all. Um, so I was there with the rich kids um, and I was raised by my grandparents and it was very social, a lot of TV shoots, big crowds, a lot of friends, very hippie, tribal, a lot of children. Um, and so that was until six. And then my grandfather died and my brother was born and then it came the dark age. Um, <laughs> and I think 
I think when I converted, I didn't yet know when I converted to Catholicism that it was the dark age. What I understood in that moment, it was that I looked around myself in this church um, and I realized that not everything here is arbitrary. Like I suddenly understood the veil of Maya, that this does, it's not, it's real, but it's not, it's completely arbitrary who your parents are and what you're wearing and which age you're born into. And these things don't really matter and you're free to go. Um, and the, my conversion was actually brought on or this epiphany experience with the light by this very young, um, poor Claire novice talking about her conversion. And it was a pilgrimage. So she told me about leaving and finding yourself and, and despair and, and, and then coming out of it in a very, it's a Franciscan, I had a Franciscan Christian experience and Teze, so very hippie, very no big crosses and jewelry and purple shit, all the, you know, beige, quiet music, guitar. Um, and I immediately understood in that moment what she meant. And, and I remember in 20, actually, actually my immigration was prompted by watching a movie that reminded me of this, a movie called Nothing Personal, uh, which is an Irish Polish movie um, with Stephen Rea, uh, shot in Ireland, um, which is a very similar thing and a very similar looking woman going away basically and putting down all her material possessions and it's very interesting because I had put down all my material possessions and I, I used to be pretty attached to my things like I literally had um two yard sales or car boot sales uh, I sold all of my clothes like everything I was wearing in my 20s and they were it was such a good wardrobe that I actually two film costume designers came and bought like box of it um it, it, there was the money with which I immigrated like that's how I made money too like Pay for stuff in London first, um, and and I and I remember standing in the middle of my yard sale and remembering the first scene of this movie, which also starts with a yard sale. Um, and I was like, oh my god, it's the it's one story. The whole thing is one story. And then of course, you know, I end up um, building spaces where these realizations can happen, and when where people can feel empowered to write their own stories how did you meet the novice she was she gave a speech during a mass if i remember correctly so you were in a catholic family i was not in a catholic family i was in a jewish very materialist very atheist family um i i had a classmate i don't know what how what was the equivalent in the uk or the us it's third and fourth year Mm -hmm. So I was 10, 11, mm -hmm. the last two years of elementary school, um, who was called Anna Beda. And she came from a Catholic family and I, she, she became my best friend, basically. Um, and, she, and I went with them to, to the church and, and we did a lot of things together. We were like singing and it was, a, she had like 12 siblings. It's actually very rare to have like a real Catholic family. Um, in Hungary, like Hungary is right. more hypocritical than religious. Um, 
but it was a very like it was a modern family the father was a doctor so it's not you don't don't think about you know people making their own butter um but um but they just really were deeply like uh uh like the head of faith and 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 it was through this other onna that i became interested in catholicism or christianity i didn't know anything about like the different uh, versions and then she died so she basically died that same year and then i became like a full-blown catholic after and i even went to a catholic school so i like fully converted myself forced my parents to take me to first communion and all those things yeah this is very high agency for a child <laughs> i was just running so fast away from everything yeah I think if I could have I would have probably sent myself to like a boarding school. The Catholic school what kind of education did they give you? I think a very good one. So I was not aware of what Jewish meant or that there was anti-semitism. I only once saw anything Jewish done when our Israeli relatives came and they did like a super hidden basement Shabbat <laughs> because they were so paranoid that even in the early 90s they would like hide in the garage in Hungary to do which mm. says a lot about like their experiences and so I didn't understand I mean I understood being bullied and like having this really difficult experience uh, of otherness but it took me again I was I'm, I'm not like very fast when I'm in a state of denial to like uh, cop up to things and so I was just thought there's something wrong with me um and so i just became this very bookish person i wanted to be a historian so i was like paying a lot of attention to that i was very inter- interested in theology we, we studied latin um and in in many ways i did have a good time i had a very i felt very independent there it was a world that my parents couldn't touch and my parents were very powerful uh so i basically like placed myself under the authority of a more powerful entity which was the catholic church and this weirdly made me feel safe. Um, and it's really interesting, like in 2014, I read this article that Maria Konikova in the New Yorker wrote about um, Norman Garmezi, the child psychologist. And uh, Garmezi researched um, resilience in children. At the beginning, she started researching, or he started researching um, problem kids. So like, what are the factors that will make it extremely likely for a child to fall out, fall behind and then out of school, 13, 14, and then crime, drugs, prison, death. Um, but as he was doing this mid 20th century, he started realizing that there are 25% of kids don't do this. Like they have all the things together to like my shadow, you know, right. <laughs> at some point just like diamond OD and they don't do it. And so he became more interested and started researching this. Like what are the strategies that these kids do instinctively? And I remember just reading this article and like weeping on my phone because I was doing all those things. And one of this is like placing yourself under the authority of a mentor, like saying like, okay, my parents are not doing what they should be doing and I feel unsafe. So I need to put myself somewhere else. And when that's a good decision, you will be much better off. Um, and I think about this a lot when we're when we're looking at you know emerging like fascist tendencies in countries, right? You could argue that you know the if in Europe, in certain parts of Europe, a lot of fathers died in the First World War, and you had an entire generation of boys who didn't have dads, 
then somehow it makes a lot of sense that there's this little guy shouting his mustache off on a stage and a lot of people are like, daddy, you know, let, lack of strict father, right? Um, or that you have, you know, generations in America now who grow up without a father, right? Because of like certain classes just being overwhelmed with the number of divorces and that the, the danger or the inclination toward accepting the authority of an external thing is like much greater. And I think it's, I think this is fine, but this should happen to you probably when you're a child. Like when you're a grown man, you should strive to be an equal member of a democratic society because you should like want to, you, you should want, like the healthy thing is to want to increase your agency, not decrease it. Um, but I was 12, so this seemed like a great idea. And I was there until I basically realized that this is stupid and I don't want to be a Catholic. <laughs> I still wanted to be a Christian, but uh, I was a bit like, guys, you are doing this all wrong. Um, and then I tried to immigrate the first time when I was 16 and I was sent to a host family in France and I was there for a year, which was very bad. And I think when I went home, when I was 17, went back to Budapest, again, I was just like overcome by this desire to stay and make it work. Um, what was bad about the French experience? I wanted to go to the U.S. because I did not speak any French um, and because I wanted to live in the U.S. Um, and because I thought that we were rich uh, and that this could be afforded. Um, but no, or my dad thought that that was too expensive and France was less expensive. And so he sent me to basically a village um, in the middle of France with a French-Hungarian dictionary. Um, so that was less good. But, you know, I kind of... I learned French. I, 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 right now I live in Brussels and I, I'm happy that I can speak French. Um, but that was maybe, that could have been better, <laughs> that experience. Um, um, I don't know. I think it was just a weird combination of me wanting things and making a compromise and my parents wanting to like seem like they're doing the cool thing whilst not really going into the detail whether that was really going to be a good thing and then just ended up in this whole mess are you still a christian oh it's complicated it's complicated i think i'm kind of still religious but i don't think it's any particular religion mm -hmm. i was quite religious until maybe when i was 14 15 so maybe four years into my life at the catholic school which started when i was 12 we started learning more about other religions and, you know, if you have more bigot friends, you know that one of the ways to protect yourself from evil is to just pretend the other religions don't exist. Because if you would read about them, you would realize that, oh, it's all the same thing. Um, because everything in life is the same. And that's amazing. You know, that's, that increases your competence. Um, and so I started learning about Buddhism, Taoism, um, and I became first kind of like a pan-religious person. Um, I was also in puberty and, you know, the moment when you start, you know, looking at boys, a lot of things that the Catholics say seem a little bit outdated. And I was like, you know, basically, I was like, no, I'm not going to get pregnant from like kissing somebody. <laughs> I'm sorry, like that's technically <laughs> Even God can't make, I'm sorry, but like God can't make that happen. Um, but I think for like for many people who enter organized religion, it became to me a thing about people, right? So you go with, uh, some people go with the, for the spiritual reasons 
and then it becomes you know it becomes very it becomes very relative right so you're not thinking whether i should be in this school or in this classroom you think who are the three people that i really like here mm-hmm. and then you convince yourself that there are the same amount of nice people everywhere and it's not necessarily true um and and i did i have to add that i i did meet a couple of saints in the catholic school like some were students like there are like there are saints among us like there are people who are just extremely good and there's no ex- i don't have an explanation you had this moment when you said you don't want to be a quotes bad person anymore yeah had you taken this example of these good people from when you were like 12 had that really stayed with you or was this a different thing no because that kind of goodness is almost like a brain mutation it's like george price level altruism that is unattainable um like all forms of genius um when i had my like great pain over not having been good i was comparing it to who i really am Mm-hmm. what I could be myself um so yeah so I had this kind of pan-religious period for quite a while and I think it was only in the early 2000s kind of gradually no let me go back in the late 90s no early to that very early 2000s so this is like after 9 11 present one two three mm-hmm. I had kind of Jewish revival period as well um so I kind of want I, I felt like a complete dumbass that I don't know enough about this um and I went I basically like started studying and then I went to summer camp and Shomer and took Hebrew classes and tried to like explore that world um w- which was interesting because it was like culturally really familiar to me you know um but at the same time really alien as well because my family were not religious like my grandparents were communists um or at least in some ways collaborating with the communist system um and also it's like in, in hungary it's almost fully about the holocaust um so mm. you have it's it's almost like a grief religion in many ways um whilst the social part of it is very hippie and kind of commune-like. So it was a very, very interesting experience. And so it was only really by mid-2000s that I had kind of like got it out of my system. And, and that was at the time when the new atheists were very big. So I had a very militant atheist period when I only read science and I smirked at all the religious people. And, and that kind of eased up. Like gradually... Um, but I, I was just thinking recently, and, and we actually had a conversation with Amjad Massad and Haya Odeh, his wife, um, at a salon recently, um, that what surprises me most about faith is that when I was fully down at the bottom, like you're taught that especially Christianity is the religion of the weak and it lifts you up, right? You are suffering, but you shall be blessed. And, you know, it spread through the Roman Empire slaves and it was pop culture. It came from the working class of the time. And then it went like the blue jeans up to the elite slowly. But in my personal experience, this is not true. 
like this, you know, Psalms, despair, dark night of the soul thing. I, when I was at the darkest in my life, or when I, I am at the darkest, I am this super selfish materialist survival machine. Like there's no transcendence. Actually, that's the that's my cue in other people as well. When you see this kind of light of grace, less shiny, less bright on somebody, you know there's a problem. And and it's now that I am I have a more stable life and I'm more successful. I make money. I you know I make money for other people, which is amazing. Like we have, we have hosts making money on internet side. That's the best thing ever. It's now that my faith is stronger. Because I, I'm on the top, but I can't be on the top. Like, top of what? I'm just this little person. I don't know anything. Um, and then this whole idea of service and channeling something bigger than you to other people as value comes back into your life. Um, or at least for me, I didn't find grace in, in suffering at all. Um, I, don't, I, I have all the respect and admiration for people who do. But I think there is this on, maybe Bob Dylan spoke about the you got to serve somebody idea. Um, but to me, that's very, very interesting. Like the responsibility of leadership to me comes with this sense of this sublime that you also feel in like nature or like, you know, facing a great work of art that, oh my God, I have to like step up to this, but I can't do alone. I, I need help. And no human can help because this is bigger than humans, right? You're you're doing whether that's an organization or art, a big family. You're doing something that, as a system, is bigger than any one human can come and, like, you know, whisper in your ear. So um, I don't know. I, I I don't have an answer. This is an ongoing process, but this is where I am right now. So, until you were six, you had the golden age. Then you go through the oh. valley of the shadow. Then you convert. Then you have the Catholic years. Mm -hmm. Then this goes away. As a as a young woman, you get very interested in Judaism. Then you're an atheist. Mm -hmm. You're in Hungary. You're doing different things. You're partying. You're having a nice time. People start leaving. Mm -hmm. You realize you have to go. Mm -hmm. You have these bad times in London. Mm -hmm. You have this moment with your family. You read the article. You decide to be a founder. Mm -hmm what happens how do you how do you because this so far has been a long and and surprising story how do you make it work does the have you brought things from religion that help you have like have you learned different skills like what it what tell us you know finish the story to get us to now hmm. how it works is that when i start doing the company it's very different I start running around London and asking, interviewing people, asking for advice. Okay. Um, I have very, very little, a very little network, but I like start making the most out of that. Like I have five new friends, but they are all super geniuses and much smarter than me. And like I listen to them, I learn from them. I are they from the startup? They are from all over the cultural or te technological world. And, and I make all the old mistakes in the first two years, all of them. I go to Newspeak House. I go to School of Life. I go to Wikimedia Foundation. I pretend to be confident and knowing what the fuck I'm doing, which is absolutely not true. Um, and 
the, the thing that gave me confidence was that during my new atheist phase and during especially my PTSD when I didn't have thoughts for nine months, I was reading a lot of science because when you don't have thoughts, you can just like dump anything into your brain, right? Like they are, it's not like, oh, they are going to like start a thought and distract you from this book. Like no, there's nothing there, right? So I was pretty smart at the time on AI and especially linguistic AI. And so I think that was kind of my, my entry fee to dinners and I couldn't go to dinner. So I couldn't go to dinners in London because I didn't have money. And for a lot of these places, like you had to pay, like prepay, uh, 50 uh, quid to go to dinner and I was like can we do this into a thing where we just stand next to a coffee machine you know like for people <laughs> like me who don't have 50 bucks or 50 quid um, and I learned a lot at that time how to ensure that when we do events offline like there are always free events and if you don't have money to buy your own drinks there will be drinks and if you don't have money to buy your pretzels there will be pretzels worry not um, and, and then very slowly, like in 2017, 2017 was the time when I won the Glamour Woman of the Year. So I went back to Budapest and then that, that I could like put that into my CV and I was experimenting. Um, I was working, I was working with like the very random selection of like researchers, product people, technical people. And I started looking at my day job as a day job, not next to writing, but next to building a company that, and I knew that, because if you're an artist, you think maybe I will be in day jobs all my life. But if you're building a company on the side, then you know that this is temporary. So I started looking at these as more temporary. I don't even remember, it's kind of a blur. I just started very slowly networking. I started being very active on Twitter. I started basically rebuilding my entire existence on Twitter and which is free so that's great um and then these famous people started noticing me because I was like constantly on Twitter and just like writing long threads and then other famous people follow you and then these famous people will also follow you so this kind of weird cycle have begins um and then in early 2018 I got into I got fired from a job because they found out that I was working on something on the side. And that was really bad. And I I lost my best friend who was my best, one of my best friends until then, who was my bestian in London because she was so fed up with me always having problems. And now they also fire me. There must be something wrong with me. So I remember losing my job and this only close friend I have in the city. Um, and, but I got into this incubator called Huckle Tree. And it was a kind of weird problem because it was a non-paid, non-equitable thing. And I told them that, you know, I'm, I, I'm dying to do this, but they quote unquote only give you an office space in London, which is amazing. But for me not having, like I literally had probably like 2000 pounds on my account and I had to pay, I don't know, 650 for this room where I was, it was, it was impossible to sleep or take a shower. Um, and I was like, this is not sustainable, but I, I did the incubator. I was like, I don't care even if I, starve to death and have to do what the actors do which is to go to a pret-a-manger before closing and they give you the leftovers I will because the incubator just sounds like something I need to, to, to do and nothing much came out of that 
but it 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 kind of removed this glamour of of technology to me because I was there and there were all these startups who were founded funded by entrepreneur first, et cetera, et cetera, it raised money. And I didn't feel so alien anymore. Um, and then I got this job at uh, at this company uh, at randomly. I missed the first job interview at this company because the, the apartment next to ours in London burned down. Uh, and I wrote about this as well. But the second job interview I went, they were so gracious. They gave me another appointment and I got this job. And only then did I realize that this is a night job because I was applying to so many places. And actually I started making my CVs with Canva. And if you make your CV with Canva, people actually invite you for interviews. The, the, the difference is striking. So if anybody's listening to this, I strongly recommend make your CV in Canva. It's amazing. Um, what is that? Sorry. Canva is um, basically a template library where you can create CVs, presentations, even if you're not a graphic artist or a designer. Um, and so I didn't really expect to get contract because I had... I had applied to so many major British magazines and got through with my writing to some places, but then they would call me up and hear that I'm a foreigner and basically like hang up on me. Um, so I was very surprised to get this night editing job. And by the way, my customer service team and the night editing team were the best people ever. Like people who, were, who have a hard job are amazing to each other. People who have easy jobs and bullshit jobs, like ad agencies and film production companies, where it's like very arbitrary to get in and then to stay in and it's very political, will stab you in the back five times per hour. Um, if you have a shit job, it's hard physically. It's amazing. People, like the community is great. Everybody's very altruistic. So if you're a team leader, I suggest you run a sporty company and there will be a much better team spirit there. So I worked there for one and a half years and I would go in the evening. I would work until the morning, as I mentioned, and then um, go home, sleep a couple of hours. And then I would work on the company uh, in the afternoon and evening. Um, at the beginning, I had a very different idea of what kind of company I want to make. I had a co-founder. Um, we tried to get into YC. Um, I... Um, I, that, that did not happen many, many, many times. And then really the, the big turning point for me happened in early 2019. So I am here where I am because of 2019. So early 2019, I multiple things happened. I moved to a new house. So I moved out of this house where I lived for three years with all these people where I couldn't sleep. I moved to a relatively nice place with only two other people. Um, I met this girl on Twitter called Lama, who was an Emergent Ventures winner. One of, I think she was in the first cohort. And she recommended me to Tyler, Tyler Cohen. I had known Tyler via email from my first company because my, my very, the very first version of my first company involved like think tanky elements. And so at the time I had some mini networking having been done with academics. Um, so that happened early 2019. Um, then I broke up with my co-founder mm -hmm. and I got invited to go to San Francisco. So in mid-March 2019, Visa Conversa, me and I 
both mega broke and everybody thinking that we just don't go to San Francisco because we don't want to, not because we can't afford a ticket. Even I couldn't afford to go to Scotland at the time, let alone, you know, <laughs> um, San Francisco. Like literally somebody wired $2,500 to my account, which to me at the time was, I don't know, half a year's of a salary from which I financed two back and forth trips to SF, one in April 2019 and one in August 2019. I had this full roster of meeting. The first meeting, that was the first time in the US. The first meeting I had after landing was with Bloomberg Beta, who then became half a year later my first investors. And I basically, on that trip, changed the whole vantage point of the company from building an AI tool that is like a protection wall for people on the internet to fully opening up, creating a space with good rules where people are fully autonomous and they build the conversation themselves and started fully rebuilt my network, raised money. Um, then I also actually like registered the company, you know, did all the legal and, and administrative paperwork. Um, and by October 2019, I had won an EV grant, a very small one, but an EV grant. I got the Bloomberg investment and I got a small investment from Nat Friedman from, um, uh, at the time, CEO of GitHub. And I basically left. I, I felt that something that was coming and I left London in a, on a whim before getting my uh, citizenship or anything, which still really bothers me. Um, and then I moved here and one month later, COVID started. Uh, if it had found me in, if COVID had found me in London before fundraising or the SF trip, I would have lost my job because my job was on a secure machine. So you had had to go in. So I think they probably fired everybody. Um, and I would have never made it to SF. And I probably, and all, like I would have, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. I, I don't even want to think about it. It would have been very bad. So I kind of felt it. I packed up and I left. Um, and, you know, it, all, every, all this took a lot of time. Like the first time I heard of Emergent Ventures grant, I, I literally cried because I was like, I would never get it. Why, do I, why did I have to find out about something that is impossible for me to get? And I was a little bit like, mad at people who would tell me about this like why are you taunting me um and then i was almost out of um london and i was like i have so many problems now and i'm so bummed out anyway that i might just you know get this emergent ventures thing in now because if i get rejected now i'm already depressed so it doesn't matter you know um and so i literally like put it together the next day i got the grant <laughs> Um, so I, that, that, there's a lesson uh, for, for me there. Um, but yeah, I was literally, I was crying in OpenAI's toilet about how I was never going to get uh, Emergent Ventures grant without trying, by the way. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the extent to which it goes. Um, and then I left and I came here um, to Brussels. I got COVID right away. I was very sick. And whilst I had COVID and I didn't have a voice for three weeks and smelling for three months and I thought I would die I was sitting in like vapor rub and three blankets and with the thermometer in my mouth I started the online community for intern slack because people wanted to talk to me and I was like oh then let's build a slack you know um, and then we used up the slack free tier in one week 
So I was like, oh, maybe there's actually a need for this. And then as, as we started building, and I was still very intent on like doing at least some of the events offline because my project started offline first. By um, end of 2020, we were profitable um, or ramen profitable. Um, and then I was like, okay, let's build up our own platform. Let's, you know, start thinking in bigger numbers and own up more openly to the ideals behind this thing. Um, and yeah, I've been doing that ever since. And I also found the one, actually, I all I found, this is so important. So people are in today's world expected to figure out what they want to do in their life at 18 and then change themselves into that person, right? Mm -hmm. Where how it works really is that you have this personal type of like your rhythm and your general like, yeah, let's say rhythm. And then you have to choose a life for that. And it was only like four months after into internet Act where I realized that I'm so incredibly efficient. And people were telling me like, oh my God, you work so hard and I didn't feel it. And then I realized like, okay, because I finally can work in my own rhythm. I have a complete... Like I grew up in show business. I have a full, and I was an athlete in my teens. So I have a stage slash athlete rhythm, which is that I wake up, I'm very introverted. I don't want to talk to anybody for a couple of hours, only do emails. And then I get more and more active. Then I have this climax, right? When it's the most extroverted, you do an event. Then you have a little high and then you have the calm down. And now I get to do that every day and I get enormous amounts of work done. And this was, like I, I was really like 36 when I realized this. So I don't think it's particularly intuitive to people because you're like, you're kind of like taught that efficiency is in this factory model, like Pomodoro, you know, um, but there are people who just have the gold ratio, whatever works for you. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a persistent lie that there are um, objective techniques for productivity as opposed to just like working in a way that suits you. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, is there anything we haven't talked about that we should have done or anything I haven't asked you that I should have done? I don't know. Um, who should write my biography? <laughs> well, you should obviously first write your own biography. Nobody would believe me. Like it's far more complicated and colorful than what I told you. <laughs> Nobody would believe anything. Oh. Well, I, did, I think you should still write it. I think it would be good. Or you should do what you said at the beginning and do a Proust and turn it into a novel and then it's all true and everyone reads it and they don't worry about whether it's true. And no one can sue you, right? Yeah, well. Because the novel, change the names. Okay. Yeah, I, I would probably do something like the early, maybe my some parts of my early life would be like Tom Wolfe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then Elizabeth Wurzel for a little bit. Yeah, it would be a, uh, it would be a joint effort from alive and deceased writers. Um, it's interesting. I don't know. I, um, I, I think I have a, probably I have the most interesting life I've ever had right now because I get to travel, which never really happened to me before. Mm -hmm. um and i get to travel on my own time yes yeah, so i have a very interesting life right now um but like it's interesting in the way that i want i think the problem is when your life is interesting in a ways that you don't want um and i hope to never really have that again mm.
um, and just have, I don't know, whatever wealth means to you, whether that's intellectual or, um, or relational or, or economic, like pile up things. It's underrated. Um, and, and I, I love that, you know, we live in an era where you can pile up things that you want without it necessarily bogging you down. Like, look at my network, like where I live right now, I have five super close friends and I don't know anybody else, like literally. And, and that's perfectly fine. And then I go to another city where I've never lived and I know 2000 people. <laughs> and it, it's very much not, you know, determining my daily habits in any way. Um, and I kind of like that. And again, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.